Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our Battleground 44 series with me, Saul David. Today, I'm speaking to historian Matthew Parker about the epic Battle of Monte Cassino in southern Italy that began 80 years ago this month. Matthew is the author of the best-selling book, Monte Cassino, the story of the hardest-fought battle of World War II, which was published in 2003. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Now, the Battle of Monte Cassino began in January 1944, 80 years ago this month. It would rage for five months and in the end conclude, I suppose, in what many historians would describe as a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, but first, let's set the scene, shall we? The Allies have invaded southern Italy in September 1943. Just give us a little bit of a sense of what they were trying to do in Italy. What were their strategic goals and how had the fighting played out by the end of 1943? Well, I think in your introductory podcast for this series, you and um, Patrick Bishop talked about the, the the sort of wider background and the strong disagreements that um, had taken place between American and British priorities. And the Americans, of course, Marshall in particular, um, was keen on concentrating on the invasion of Northern Europe and saw the Mediterranean as a sort of sideshow and something motivated by British imperial interests rather than the the hope of giving Germany as quick a defeat as possible. And after the successful rounding up of the campaign in North Africa, there was a lot of debate about what to do next. Um, I think Churchill at one point wanted to set the Balkans alight and there were plans for invading Sardinia as well as Sicily. And the invasion of Sicily, as, as um, your listeners will know, was, was actually sort of fair successful and it achieved what in fact the Italian campaign would be uh, rather a sort of afterthought because the successful capture of Sicily uh, knocked the Italians out of the war and also secured the Mediterranean as a sort of um, in terms of um, control of the, of the seas. So really what was the Italian campaign about? This is this is the great question. There was talk of securing airfields from which the Allies would be able to attack, particularly um, sort of oil refineries and oil interests in, in Romania, which of course were of great importance to the German war effort. But really it was just a sort of what do we do next? 
And the rather sort of shambolic start to the campaign, of course, is the successful escape of many of the German troops across the Straits of Messina from Sicily. And the idea to attack from the south of Italy is, of course, one of the, I guess, one of the great errors of, of the British, of the Allied uh, commanders in the war. Napoleon famously said, Italy is a boot, you enter it from the top. However, in order to have uh, fighter cover over any sort of landing beaches, as far north as the Allies could land was just south of Naples at Salerno, as, as you know. And this was a pretty close-run thing. There were substantial Allied losses. A lot of prisoners were taken. And it really convinced General Kesselring, who was the supreme German commander in the theatre, that a German troop, each German soldier was worth three Allied soldiers. And and this really brought him to the idea of defending, taking on defensive positions south of Rome. And he was convinced that he could really break the Allies' teeth on their travel north. And one of the reasons why, famously, you, you don't invade Italy from the south is because of the, the terrain between uh, Naples and Rome, high mountains, fast-flowing rivers, really excellent defensive territory. And so the Allies had a real slog ad- advancing north from Naples. Okay, so by the end of the year, they've reached this heavily fortified defensive position in the mountains south of Rome, as you say. It was known as the Gustav Line. So you've talked a little bit about why advancing up the boot of Italy was so difficult. But what was the Gustav Line in terms of its location? And also tell me a little bit about the Keystone, which of course is Monte Cassino and the monastery that sits atop it. Yeah, because of the very successful um, sort of German defensive actions um, on that journey up towards towards Casino, Kesselring had had plenty of time to create uh, a really formidable defensive position. In fact, the 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 Casino Monastery, which is a, a very famous Benedictine monastery, one of the most sacred sites in Christendom, had actually been studied in sort of war schools as one of the the best defensive positions in. The whole of Europe. And this is for, for, for several reasons. You've got this very high spur of land over the, the, the valley below, which has sort of natural moats, really, in the Garigliano and the Liri rip, rip, and the Rapido River. And these of these had been dammed in order to create flooding. So it all the, the entire front of the, the casino position was a sort of quagmire and therefore pretty unpassable for tanks and, and other armoured vehicles. And in the time that um, Kesselring had, there'd been caves had been dynamited, pillboxes had been built, um, all sorts of fields of fire had been cleared of trees and, and buildings. There were mines everywhere, there was barbed wire, every possible sort of um, entry point towards the, the monastery had been set up with machine guns on sort of fixed fields of fire. And at the same time, you have to remember that the, this was a, a particularly harsh winter in Italy. You know, the idea of sunny Italy was a sort of grim joke in the in the winter of of forty three um, forty four. So you've got really really tough conditions for the attacking soldiers, and as I said, one of the most perfect defensive positions that we saw at all in the war. Now, um, in this sort of, you know, typically infuriating way, there's a a preparatory battle that almost comes or that does come within an ace of actually outflanking um, the casino position. And this is when the North African uh, troops attack the sector to the north. Tell me what happened there and why this was, you know, a missed opportunity. 
Well, I think, and as as you know, the it's an extraordinarily multinational battle. I think there's something like 17 different nationalities, and it's fascinating to compare them in terms of their attitudes and in terms of their proficiency as as combat soldiers. Now, amongst the very best in the Allied ranks were the Goumiers, the North African mountain troops from Tunisia and Morocco. And they were perfectly suited for the sort of fighting that was happening um, on the Gustav, the mountainous Gustav line. And with some quite extraordinary sort of bravery, they had they had very nearly broken through. They'd got to the top of a, of a mountain that actually um, towered over the casino position. But the French, when you talked in, in your introduction about coalition warfare and the, 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 the hazards that are involved in that in terms of trust and in terms of cooperation, and the French, they weren't trusted by the Allied High Command. There was the, there was this sort of shadow of, of 1940 and the collapse of the French army in you know after the blitzkrieg and so they weren't reinforced in the way that that with hindsight is obviously very easy um but they they should have been reinforced reinforced and you also have to bear in mind the difficulty of this because it's not easy logistically to pour in you know supplies ammunition and men when you are fighting in this incredibly difficult terrain so there was a, a failure to back their effort, but also you, you have to bear in mind the extremely difficult logistics in this position. Okay, so let, let's just revisit that point a second. I mean, not entirely trusted the French. If is is your broader point here that if if there had been more trust of the French, they might have taken advantage of this movement by the Goumiers prior to the casino battles themselves. It's a very difficult one. I think you have to you have to sort of bear in mind the situation in January forty four. The Allied armies were exhausted and had a, a really quite serious morale problem. I mean, I think the out of the British army there was something like twenty thousand deserters, and they'd kind of run out of places to lock them up. And I think the Supreme Allied Commander and General Alexander actually sort of tr- lobbied to try and get the death penalty reinstated for for desertion. The, the, the Americans, they had something like 40,000 battle casualties, but 50,000 men off sick. So this isn't a, a sort of a force really in a position or in a sort of state to pounce on the opportunity that the French has presented to them. Okay, well, let's talk about the casino battles themselves, because there are four, as we're going to discover. Um, it's important, I think, to say at this point, isn't it, Matthew, that the casino battles themselves are never fought in isolation. They're always fought as part of a broader effort, by which I mean, of course, there are operations going on along the uh, Gustav line. And also, uh, at the same time, of course, and this is a subject I'll come on to in a separate podcast, uh, the Anzio operation, which is which is a landing further north, that's south of Rome, but north of the Gustav line, which of course is intended to take the pressure off the Gustav line and hopefully lead to a breakthrough. But let's talk about these four battles themselves. The first one, as we say, began in late January 1944, 80 years ago this month. Who was responsible for planning that battle? What troops were involved? Uh, And what did the Germans have at Monte Cassino to oppose this initial attack? Okay, um, you have, if you sort of look from sort of left to right along the Gustav line, the um, on the Adriatic coast, I mean, this is this is running over one of the narrowest parts of Italy. So it's not that long. But on the Adriatic coast, really, things had just got completely bogged down, there was really extensive flooding. Um, and that front was really sort of just shut down. And the only way to get to Rome 
was along the uh, what was known as Route 6, which is the road that runs. It's an old Roman road and it runs past the monastery. So this is a sort of pinch point. So the objective is to get past the monastery. And in order to do this, there was a plan for a British corps to attack across the Garigliano River, which is on the sort of left flank. Um, you have continued French attacks on the right flank. Um, and in the middle, right in front of the monastery, um, 36th US Division was ordered to cross the Rapido River and, and, and advance up this, up this road. And this happens simultaneously, of course, with the Anzio landings. Now, the, the Allies had control of the sea, they had control of the air, although most aircraft were grounded in, due to poor weather. Um, they had massive superiority in tanks and in ammunition, but as the terrain really made tanks almost useless, I mean, there was a saying that a mule was worth 10 tanks in the casino battles. Um, so what happens is the British cross the Garigliano River, and this is, river crossings are a sort of recurring nightmare of the casino story. A lot of the boats are overturned, heavily laden soldiers sink to the bottom. There's one veteran told me a story of how he was, he was, he sort of dropped his pack and was swimming to the, um, the other side of the river and had hands pulling at his feet from the men who were, who were sort of drowning beneath him. However, they did establish a small bridgehead and they did, cause a, some strategic reserves to be moved to that sector, which obviously made the Anzio landing much safer. And it was, of course, as, as you know, it was fairly almost unopposed. But the in the middle, the, the 36th Texas Division had, well, it was described later in the US press as the biggest disaster since Pearl Harbor. Um, these are many of the troops were replacements. The 36th Division had been pretty much wiped out several times in the in the fighting in the preceding months, and they had to go across um, a mine minefield um, in the dark, carrying heavy boats under fire, and lots of them just panicked, threw down their weapons, and made themselves scarce. Uh, the very few number of men who got to the other side were quickly became prisoners of war, and so the, this was an absolute disaster. And to blame um, people, you talked about Mark Clark with Patrick in your previous podcast. You know, I, I my, my book's really based on, at its sort of core, is interviews with veterans. And 20 years ago, there was a lot still alive. I interviewed about 500 from all, all different nationalities. And lots of them, somewhat surprisingly, had lots of good things to say about their commanding officers, whether it's sort of a battalion, regimental, or even core level. No one had a good word for Mark Clark. And actually, in fact, Walker, who was the general of in charge of the 36th Division, had deep misgivings about this this frontal attack by his men. Um, he was he really didn't want to do it. And after the war, there was actually a congressional investigation into Clark's order to the 36th in the Rapido River, and I think he was exonerated. But that's the sort of level of disaster that um, his orders caused. It's interesting because our sister podcast, We Have Ways, James Holland's writing a book, of course, about uh, Casino at the moment. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I do. I've, he's been, I've been sharing my interviews with him. Have you? Well, he is a staunch supporter of Mark Clark and it slightly mystifies me. I, 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 so I'm interested to hear, hear your, your view and whether it's changed at all over the previous 20 years. I mean, you mentioned Walker. Walker's diaries are incredibly explicit, and he's not the only one, actually. Um, Ryder comes into the story, the 34th Division, which takes over from the 36th, and no doubt you're going to come on to that in a sec. And again, the commander is incredibly critical of Clark. Now, you could say, well, of course, their divisions haven't done that well. They're, they're looking for a scapegoat, but the orders are coming down from 
on high, aren't they? The overall direction of this battle is is being controlled by Clark. And in the end, when things don't go right, the buck, I'm afraid, has to stop with him. Uh, but what's your feeling? Have, have your have your views changed at all? Um, I wouldn't say so. I'm mean, one of the things that is you know held against Clark, and I think this is this is all this is really sort of very damning. Is his obsession with publicity with his profile you know as, as you know he he would send out the sort of press releases had to include his name twice on the first page and three times or you know he would only be photographed from one side which he thought was his better side uh, and of course famously and we'll maybe we'll get to this later his um, vain glorious desire to be the first into rome allowed the uh, you know allowed the escape of, of the german 10th army after the end of the battles so no, no i haven't i haven't i haven't changed my mind i'd be very interested to hear what james says about it and i look forward to his book well, I'm going to get him to talk about Anzio, actually. So we'll, we'll, we'll obviously interlink Anzio with, with Monte Cassino, and it'll be interesting to hear his views. Um, just as a, a quick extra, I'm currently writing about North Africa, as, uh, as many of the listeners to this podcast know. And it's interesting when Clark first comes on the scene there. I mean, he's Eisenhower's deputy when the North African landings begin. A lot of the fellow commanders, including Patton, are already commenting on his ambition and his determination for publicity. So they can see he was hungry for recognition uh, and hungry for fame at that at that early stage. Does this necessarily make him a bad uh, battlefield commander? No, not necessarily. But Clearly, it's a character trait that can bring problems with it. Yes, you mentioned you mentioned Ryder in the thirty fourth. What what happens after after the the rapido is there is there is an an attack slightly to the sort of right if you're looking at looking towards the monastery by by Ryder's thirty fourth American division, and they get a couple of tanks sort of down towards the the rivers. I they get bogged down, but then they have a stroke of luck, which is a rare thing for the Allies at Casino. There's a heavy fog descends, and through this fog, they are, they can infiltrate up to the high grounds to the effectively the right of the monastery and establish a, a, a deep salience overlooking the the monastery position. And and this this sort of promises great things. There are difficulties. It's the conditions are absolutely appalling. Uh, you can't dig in because the, it's just rock. So you have to sort of pile rocks around yourself. It's freezing cold. You're incredibly exposed. There are constant German counterattacks, and perhaps more most crucially, it's very difficult to supply these men and to to reinforce them. You have to go sort of out of sight of the German artillery spotters. You have to sort of weave your way up um, with mules up this sort of this steep mountain so they're they're at the end of the first battle they're still there but they're very exposed and they're and they're suffering great things I mean, you're pretty complimentary about the 34th Division, and, and why wouldn't you be? I mean, you describe their performance at Casino, albeit with that big slice of luck, as you've mentioned, as one of the finest feats of arms for infantry during the war. They sustained losses of about 80% in some of the infantry battalions, uh, 2,200 casualties. And it's interesting that this division, of course, is blooded for the first time in the war in North Africa, again, the subject I'm writing about, and it's almost disgraced at a battle called Sidi Bouzid when two battalions from the 34th Division are effectively surrounded, cut off, and eventually captured. About 200 of them survived. So it started the war very badly. But it's interesting, isn't it, that, of course, the 
these relatively green American troops in North Africa are slowly but surely learning the business of war. And, and by this performance at Casino, you can see that the US 34th Division, albeit up against, you know, incredibly difficult odds, both in terms of the defensive position of the Germans and the climactic conditions in which they're having to fight, but they actually do a pretty good job, don't they? Yeah, I mean, and at a, at a huge cost. There's a, uh, an amazing quote from Martha Gellhorn, who was covering the journalist who was covering the battles she sees the men when they're, they're, they're eventually relieved by the fourth indian division she sees them come down and she just says these are just she looks their eyes are dead there's nothing like these are hollow pale just broken broken men but they did they did achieve this this position up on the mountain that was going to be absolutely key Okay, so this sets the scene for the second battle, Operation Avenger, um, chiefly fought by, as you've mentioned, New Zealand 2nd Division and also the 4th Indian Division. And I think commanded overall by General Freiburg, who was, of course, a New Zealander, a great favourite of Churchill's, won the VC in the First World War, um, but not a great favourite of mine, I have to say. What, what, do you, what do you think of Freiburg, Matthew, and how do you think he conducted this battle? Well, I mean, this is we're going back to the sort of coalition, the problems of coalition warfare. He, like you said, he had a sort of hotline to Churchill, so Clark couldn't really sort of command him, in perhaps in the way that he would have liked to. And he was he had a sort of very independent streak, Freiburg. You know, these New Zealanders had come a long way, and he he you know sort of looked out for them in a way. You know, they were, they were he was very sort of paternalistic towards them and you know the americans always said that the the british by and by extension the empire troops were very reluctant much more reluctant than the americans to take casualties you know they they'd obviously the british had been through a lot more of the first world war than the americans had and they were they did have a different attitude and they did try to minimize casualties to a greater extent than the american generals did and all the time they're blaming each other i mean there was i, I should have mentioned the, the rapido there was supposed to be a, another british attack on their left flank which would have sort of they hope protected some of the men going in the right in the center and that completely failed and so it was really you know clark Im immediately starts blaming the british for the failures at uh, rapido river but anyway the, the second battle it's it's a rather sort of it's rather piecemeal, I think. I mean, what, what's happening at Anzio is important because Anzio was supposed to sort of, you know, outflank the Gustav line. You know, they'd, they'd land these troops behind the line, the line would collapse. But what, what happened in reality is that the, you know, the huge numbers of men went to, went to short Anzio, but then sort of just stayed there. They didn't do the breakout as had been planned for various reasons, which I'm sure you'll discuss um, in more detail in your, in, in a, a subsequent podcast. But what happened was the sort of Anzio became the tail that wagged the dog. They had to keep attacking at Casino in order to prevent the Germans having the, the forces to, to drive the Anzio bridgehead back into the sea, which they very nearly did. So there was this need to continue attacking. And this is political as well. I mean, you talked about this again a bit with Patrick. There was constant pressure on the Allies to just keep keep fighting you know even a war of attrition was better than than not doing anything you know there was still fears that the russians might make a separate peace with germany it was essential for political reasons so there was sort of the politics was sort of driving the military decision making which is as as we all know often um, a very unfortunate state of affairs and so what happened is the um most famously of course the monastery is bombed big mistake I mean, is it is it generally accepted? It was a big mistake. The, the typical version of events is that the Germans weren't there before the bombing and afterwards they thought, great, we'll use it as a defensive position. Is, is, is there some truth in that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's this has been debated by many times. I mean, certainly the Italians I spoke to when I was researching the book thought that the bombing of the monastery was the most obscene war crime. Um, I mean, this is a really sacred site, and it's full of frescoes and irreplaceable art. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff had been removed by the Germans, um, but there's still irreplaceable treasures of you know historical treasures there. But the the Allied soldiers, really, from the sort of generals down to the sort of the, the lowest squaddy, they saw the monastery as this sort of looming, sinister thing. I mean, it's got these thick walls with these little tiny windows, and it seemed to be sort of looking down at them. And they were convinced that Germans were inside and were using the position. Obviously, artillery spotters are vital components of battles at this at, at this period of military history. And in order to the monastery had to be taken, and in order to be taken, it was decided that it had to be destroyed. And there was this massive air attack. We're talking flying fortresses coming in and pouring bombs, and not just on the monastery, also on quite a few of the Allied soldiers nearby and Italian villages. And I think it was estimated that the the American Air Force actually killed more Allied soldiers and, and civilians than it ever did Germans. And what happens is that you've got this massive wreck, but it's still, a lot of the walls are still standing, and it becomes... A a superb defensive position for the Germans, who I certainly think were not in the monastery. There were people in the monastery. There was hundreds of refugees from surrounding villages, uh, you know, about a hundred of whom were killed in the attack. Once the monastery was just was sort of bombed, then there should have been an immediate attack by the the soldiers of the Fourth Indian who were in this salient that the the Americans had had won for them, but partly because war is just always chaos and confusion. You know, we, we, we sort of look at it now, but if you talk to people who are there, no one knew what's going on. No one knows what's happening. It's just blunders after blunders. And so it was a long time before the, and partly because, as I said, they're very difficult to supply and they've been delayed getting the troops up there. And so it's, so the Germans had plenty of time to, to, to sort of assume new defensive positions around the monastery and repel the attack from the Gurkhas and the Indians and the the British soldiers of of 4th Indian Division. And these are elite troops, elite divisions that are being absolutely sort of wrung dry. Uh, At the same time, there's an attack, again, two piecemeal by a Maori regiment from the New Zealand Division. And this this, um, proceeds along the causeway from an old from a railway line that running into the station and it's a very narrow attack path which make obviously causes difficulties and they do capture the station in the town and they hold it briefly but german tanks appear and they're they're forced to retreat so that's really the the, the, the second battle that achieves absolutely nothing okay we'll take a break there do join us for part two when we'll be hearing about the third and final battles of monte cassino This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back. In part one, Matthew set the scene and explained what happened in the first two battles for Monte Cassino. We're now going to discuss the second and final battles and also the outcome and whether the fight was worth it. Okay, and moving on to the third, and we're into March now. This is the 15th of March. It's still the uh, New Zealanders and the 4th Indian, but they're backed up by now by the 78th Division, which uh, again, I've, I've come across in North Africa. It's actually got quite a vaunted reputation from its fighting there and also sicily i gather it was as indeed the second new zealanders and the fourth indian part of the eighth army and it's interesting isn't it that given that clark is the fifth army commander he's actually got a lot of units fighting at casino under his overall control that are eighth army so it's quite a confusing picture really isn't it but what happens in this third battle well as you said the 78th division is brought over from the adriatic coast and the, the, again, there's, it, it starts with a spectacular bombing. This time, it's decided that the try and get control of the town of Casino, which is sort of sits below the monastery, sort of astride this this key road north to Rome. And there's this, I think it was probably probably something of a first, a carpet bombing of the Casino town. A, a hu- again, huge amounts of explosives. Um, and if you go to Casino now, there's not a single building that predates the war still standing there. I mean, it really, it, the whole place is absolutely crunched. Um, and defending the, the town are probably the Germans' most elite unit, the parachute division. And again, rather like there's a parallel with the bombing of the, of the monastery. What the bombing of the town does is just creates this huge amount of sort of obstacles. So it's, again, it's, there's just rubble and bits of smashed up building everywhere. And so very difficult to sort of advance on a broad front. So you, the attacking New Zealanders are often sort of funneled into sort of narrow and, and you know, easily defensible paths. And in spite of this spectacular bombing, enough of the Germans survive to sort of dig themselves out and and to fight. And this is, we're talking, this is real hand-to-hand fighting now happening in the town. You, you know, there's amazing stories of, you know, New Zealanders being on one floor and hearing Germans in the room above them or, or sort of, um, in the in a in a in an adjacent building, so you sort of blow a hole in the wall, and suddenly there's loads of Germans there, um, and this is really some of the most brutal hand to hand fighting of the of the whole series of battles, um, and a lot of the town is is captured, but there's a few key positions, these sort of very large, heavily walled hotels containing sort of eight you know eighty eight guns, and they still hold off, and Freiburg looks at it and he looks and. You know, he hears the reports coming back, um, and I think Clark is urging him to to sort of pour more men in to finish this, this off. But he just says he just replies with one word, Passchendaele, uh, and he decides that enough is enough, 
and and he and that's the end of but th- i mean there's other things happening as well there's a there's the the indian division are they managed to capture castle hill which is this medieval sort of tower really which sort of halfway up the the mountain on which the monastery sits uh and some of the gurkhas actually infiltrate quite a long way up towards the the monastery but uh, you know so they're actually sort of looking down on the town behind them where the germans are still fighting so this isn't this is getting close to to a breakthrough but um in the end the you know the, the german defenders drive them back down and although they hold on to castle hill there's this amazing sort of medieval battle taking place on the battlements and grenades being thrown over and, and so on and they they hold on to that so they they've gotten they've got closer they've got closer but the breakthrough is still absolutely out of reach it's fascinating that Freiburg refers to Passchendaele. I mean, I mentioned he won the VC in the First World War. I think that was on the first day of the Somme. Um, no doubt a listener will correct me if I'm wrong on that. But, uh, you know, he was a veteran of the First World War. And I think you make the general point, you've already made it actually today, Matthew, that the British were a little bit more risk averse in terms of conserving casualties, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing personally, uh, and the Americans uh, possibly a little bit the other way. Okay, so let's move on to the fourth and final battle. It doesn't take place until May. Why such a big gap between the two, between the third and the fourth? Well, I think this is, um, I've, I've been asked many times when I've been talking about the battle, you know, what should they have done? And eventually they do what they should have done back in January, which is wait for better weather. Wait for the land in front of the monastery to dry out sufficiently that you can put tanks across it, for the skies to clear sufficiently so you can flex your huge um, superiority in the air, and also to make proper preparation, and also to assemble an overwhelming force which is what Alexander does. By the time he orders the the attack in May, the Allies outnumber the Germans something like four to one. They have 10 times the tanks. They have, as I said, complete superiority in the air. And it's also much better planning goes into it. And maybe that's one of the reasons why um, it, it doesn't happen sooner. So there's elaborate deception schemes. There's sort of feints towards uh, other amphibious landings behind the lines, which draw... German troops away from Casino. And there's very good operational surprise actually on the ground to the extent that the German local commander, Senger von Ettelin, is actually on leave when the, the fourth battle starts. Um, and it's still a very close run thing. You've still got to get across the Rapido River. And the idea was to build Bailey, put Bailey bridges across it. And, and almost all of them fail. Only one is and, and the Amazon Bridge, and this is one of the one of the most famous sort of episodes in the history of the Royal Engineers, where they put this bridge across under heavy fire, and then you know the Allied tanks can keep can start rolling over, and again the the French uh, mountain troops um, really prove their worth again because they attack uh, on the the left flank through the mountainous country and they outflank the, the Germans in. The Leary Valley. Um, on the coast where we saw in the first battle, the British had established a bridgehead. Um, a couple of American divisions sort of slowly advance up the coast. And then, of course, you have the Poles who have replaced uh, up on the Massif in that salient that the Americans had secured back in January is now full of very bloodthirsty and determined Polish troops. Victory is about, as I said, sort of just for weight of force. There's a there's a story I was told of an American soldier who had a um, a German prisoner of war, and he was saying to him, "Oh, you know, if you're so elite, you know, how come you're my prisoner now?" And he and, and this guy he, he'd been operating an anti tank gun, eighty eight millimeter anti tank gun, and he said, 
you know, the tanks kept coming around the corner. We kept knocking them out, but we ran out of shells and the Americans didn't run out of tanks. And that is a really sort of nice little summation of the final victory that by just sheer weight of weight of force. You mentioned the Poles. It was, of course, the Polish Second Corps, which eventually uh, takes the monastery famously or infamously on the 18th of May, something of which the Poles, who, of course, have been uh, effectively driven out of their own land, which is under German and Russian occupation now, are inordinately proud. How tough was the final fighting for the monastery? Well, the, Pol- the, Pol- the Polish is one of the many fascinating stories. You know, I, in my book, I, I really do tell the backstories of them and of the Gurkhas. I mean, there's the, the, there's a story of a Gurkha who finds himself on a ship to Europe. No one has actually told him there was a, uh, there was a war on. He didn't even know that he was going off to a war. The Polish were almost almost all of them had been in the the east of Poland, which was taken over by by Stalin, and he, you know, he, the Russians then shipped out. You know, all of the old Polish army, I mean, we know what happened to the officers, but also most sort of able-bodied men were shipped to the gulags in Siberia, to mines and forestry and and, and worked basically as slave labor. But then there's a sort of negotiations occur and they're allowed to leave and they go. They come into um, Iran, and where they are met by the British, who who give them training, they give them weapons and uniforms, and they become this really, really sort of effective fighting force. Um, and they're really fighting for an independent Poland at the end of the war. They hate the Russians as much as much as they hate the Germans, and they they end up in Italy, and they are really determined to to cover themselves in glory and 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 ref, this re, is reflected back and you know, people start writing on walls in Poland Monte Cassino and they they attack with a sort of you know a complete lack of any sort of they ignore cover they just they just absolutely just swarm down on towards the monastery or over this ground that has been fought over and fought over and fought over and they suffer absolutely appalling losses and are, are, are driven right back to their start lines they attack again a couple of days later and they still don't get to the monastery but then a, a white flag goes up in the monastery that there's a few of these elite paratroopers there they, it, they're mainly just wounded men still germans still in the monastery and they can see down in the valley they see the tanks pouring past them and going up the Liri valley they know that their position is no longer tenable and so they remove themselves they leave behind a couple of people one of whom i actually interviewed for the book it's a fascinating guy and, and so the poles don't actually conquer the monastery but it's a polish lieutenant gerbiel who is the first allied soldier to go in and he puts up uh, a pennant above the monastery. And this is for the Polish soldiers. This is an absolutely fantastic moment for them. Before we go on to the consequences, what happened next and uh, and whether the battle was worth fighting in the first place, one fascinating aspect of the battle that from your book that I noticed is uh, not that well known, is that looting and rape was commonplace as Allied soldiers took out their frustrations on Italian civilians. But who were the worst perpetrators and, and why did they behave in such a depraved manner? Well, I think I think in my book, and particularly meeting these people who had been there, I really wanted to, to get to the heart of what it was actually like to be a soldier at Casino or in Italy at this time. And... As I think I've said that the morale was low. There was no, there was very little. I think one Canadian said, Canadian soldier said, all of that, you know, country and God, you know, sold that. That went out with the First World War. No one believes in that sort of patriotism. And there's epic amounts of drinking goes on. And this is the Germans as well. The one German machine gunnist said that he was just drunk the whole time, you know, in, in his foxhole. He was just drunk. 
And there was a, a Canadian, a New Zealand soldier who got so drunk that he fell over and drowned in a puddle, face down in a puddle. And they would go to Naples and they would, you know, men who would never have contemplated something like that at home would visit prostitutes in Naples, where most of the female population was basically employed as prostitutes. Such was their um, desperate state. And, but certainly talking to Italian civilians that who had been children at the time, the stories that are really, the, the most chilling stories are of the French North African soldiers, the Goumier. And it, it actually became necessary for the local civilians to be basically sort of put in a, like, behind wire, in a camp behind wire to protect them from the Goumiers and their, you know, who considered rape to be part of, you know, just like a, the Gurkhas would, would collect ears, as did the Goumier and, you know, of men that they had killed. You know, these are brutal and brutalized men, which is, of course, what makes them the most effective soldiers, you might argue. And, and the French officers, probably didn't act with the sort of, uh, you know, with, with the speed and severity that they should have done to stop this happening. But then you have to be very careful because there's always this, I mean, in the First World War, there are all these stories about the French, the French West African soldiers, oh, they're all, you know, raping all the Germans and, you know, and in fact, a lot of this is sort of inspired by racism. I mean, let's be honest. So I think you have to be very careful not to exaggerate uh, or not to sort of get carried away with the accusations that were made against the French North Africans. Yeah, and you also make the point in the in the book that it would be unfair to blame them alone because, and I quote, every large army contains its fair share of sociopaths and criminals and the degrading conditions of warfare have always facilitated this sort of behaviour. That's exactly right, yeah. So the uh, battle itself has now been won. It, the, it ends, of course, with, I mean, Operation Diadem, which is a, an operation that's happening across Italy, but also is intended to link in with a breakout from Anzio. And ultimately, there are two main aims now. One, to trap as much of the German 10th Army as possible. And the second, of course, is to get to Rome as quickly as possible. They manage the former, but not the latter. And I think, as you've already mentioned on the podcast, Clark is to blame. Can you quickly explain how and why things could have gone differently. Yes, as you said, there's a, there's a simultaneous breakout from Anzio, um, which is looking to cut off the retreat of, of the German 10th Army. But at a, cruci- at a crucial moment, the one point it looks like the British might get to Rome first, and Clark's not having this. So at a crucial moment, he diverts men to be the first to enter Rome. And, you know, for him, it's a fantastic chance for a, a photo shoot. And he's endlessly photographed standing next to the Rome sign, which he actually ships back home as a memento. And it is it's still a very important moment in the war. I mean, like all of the Italian campaign, it's overshadowed by D-Day happening, you know, pretty much straight afterwards. But it's still, you know, it, it was the capital of what had been one of the, the key Axis powers, and it's now in Allied hands. And, you know, obviously Italy has now joined the war on the Allied side, um, although there are sort of Mussolini supporters still fighting in the north. But then what happens after is a lot of the best troops are shipped off to either for, to support D-Day or to for the invasion of southern France, which I think, as you mentioned, is a very little known um, aspect of this this time in the war. And so what happens is they, they trudge northwards and they just meet another great big line of mountains in the north, populated by these elite German soldiers who should have been in the bag after the breakout of Anzio. And, and there they just, everything sort of pieces out into, again, further attrition. 
Um, and there had been this hope to sort of for the Allies to sort of break out of North Italy and into the Balkans, into Yugoslavia, to to sort of grab as much of it as they could before the Russians got there. Uh, and this this obviously doesn't happen because they're just they become a sort of a, a very sort of minor part uh, a theater of the war compared with what's happening in northern europe by this point point. and so we come to the final question which was was the battle worth fighting and i suppose this plays into the italian campaign more generally doesn't it uh, matthew because the the defense of was the battle worth fighting was the italian campaign necessary was that well of course what they're going to do is tie down some of the best german divisions and commanders and they're going to keep them away from the normandy invasion and it's absolutely true that a significant number of divisions i think up to 48 are kept fighting in italy and are not available to repel the normandy invasion so do you buy that argument i mean was this battle worth fighting I do, I do to an extent, and there was another. I noticed when I was researching the book that at one point, um, I think it was after the first D'Anzio landing, there was a division that actually moved from the Eastern Front as well at the time of the Battle of Kursk, which is obviously crucial. And I mean, I think you have to the way that the battle was fought. I mean, there's a famous quote by J.F.C. Fuller who said, who called it a campaign which, for lack of strategic sense and tactical imagination, is unique in military history. Uh, you don't get much more damning than that. And I think certainly. It's so easy with hindsight, and armchair, I'm very suspicious of armchair generals who haven't sort of, you know, who weren't there to sort of refight battles. But clearly, everything, you know, the first three battles, they're, they're rushed, they're driven by politics, they're driven by by Anzio. Anzio itself is the reason that is a, that has to happen in January is because the landing craft have to get back to England for for the Normandy landing. So everything is, you know, dependent on something else rather than being seen on its own. And you could say definitely that a lot of German troops were were tied up, but so were a lot of Allied troops. I mean, I mean, you've got some very good Allied divisions as we've discussed, really being put through the mincer at Casino and would never really recover their their effectiveness. So it's, as you said, right at the beginning of our conversation, it is a classic Pyrrhic victory, Casino. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Matthew. Really appreciate you coming to talk to us on the podcast. And we'd love to have you back at some point to talk about something else. But best of luck with your new project. You can't talk about it yet, can you? No, but um, I'm still enjoying the lovely reviews for One Fine Day, which is my new book that is out in hardback now. Yeah, a one fine day. And I should also mention, actually, because you've just reminded me that um, Monte Cassino, which was first published 21 years ago, it's hard to believe, isn't it, uh, that we've been around for that long, Matthew, writing history books. But you you now tell me, I mean, astonishingly, that it's now sold more than half a million copies. And presumably that's in all forms of publication. But even so, it's an astonishing amount. And there's a new Polish version, which just underlines the the seriousness with which the Poles remember this part as a glorious bit of their military history. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday for the latest news from Ukraine and Gaza, and when we'll also be answering listeners' questions. And again next Wednesday for another episode of Battleground 44. Goodbye. Goodbye.